The Funambulist Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, the history of Okinawa political resistance with Wendy Matsumura. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Wandi Matsumura, who is uh, Assistant Professor of Japanese History at the University of California in San Diego, and she's also the author of uh, a book called The Limits of Okinawa, Japanese Capitalism, Living Labor and Theorization of Community, uh, published in 2015 at Duke University Press. Uh, hello Wendy. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for talking with me today uh, about Okinawa specifically, uh, uh, and uh, which uh, it's, it's, I'm very looking forward to this conversation. Uh, and maybe I might remind uh, listeners that you wrote, uh, you're also the author of an article in uh, The Phenomenalist, uh, issue 9, dedicated to islands about Okinawa as well. So we'll. I think we'll be covering a bit the ground of your book, which uh, which goes from uh, the 1870s to uh, uh, the 1930s, uh, as well as uh, uh, more contemporary situations that you describe in this article. So um, perhaps to um, to do what I'm used to do <laughs> in those podcasts is maybe uh, 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 warm up the voice uh, under the microphone. Uh, uh, could, you, could you tell us a little bit what you're currently working on? Sure. Um, so right now what I'm doing is I'm working on, I guess it's my second book project, um, which takes sort of um, the end point of the first book, which is early 1930s. And what I wanted to do was to write about um, the um, experiences of um, people living in and outside of Okinawa um, during the 1930s and 1940s um, and to rethink sort of this prevailing idea that exists. I think that um, Okinawans were like the most betrayed members of the Japanese population in a period of kind of um, total war mobilization by sort of looking at ways in which um, Okinawans not kind of didn't necessarily accept um, those conditions of wartime mobilization, but in fact were um, engaged in acts of resistance that perhaps did not get recorded um, as such. So in terms of the, the sort of um, the framework and the theme, um, it's pretty similar um, to what I did in the first book, but I really wanted to get into the 30s and the 40s, um, which are oftentimes seen as kind of this black box where there is like total victimization, no resistance possible, no struggles or anything like that. Um, and I also wanted to incorporate a much more explicitly uh, Marxist feminist framework. So I will be sort of um, analyzing this, I think, within sort of the frame of um, social reproduction. So, um, yeah, expanding the, the scope and then also sort of sharpening the um, gender analysis a little bit more. In, in your book, uh, The Limits of Okinawa, you, you take um, essentially five specific uh, moments of, uh, of Okinawa um, um, and Okinawan uh, resistance to... to uh, uh, the the growth of um, the growth of capitalism 
through the through the through the um, through a, a parallel process of um, of uh, Okinawa becoming uh, part of uh, Japan. So perhaps before we even get to that, can we can we maybe talk about uh, the premises of this uh, of this history uh, that starts at the end of the 19th century and talk about what the Ryukyu Kingdom uh, used to be before that? Okay. Um, so uh, basically what we know to be Okinawa today, um, Okinawa Prefecture is considered, you know, just one sort of administrative unit of the Japanese nation state, which began um, with the region's incorporation into um, the, the state in 1879. Before that, um, Okinawa was not called Okinawa, it was called the Ryukyu Kingdom, and um, this kingdom um, was something um, that um, was itself part of a unification process, right? So um, the family that sort of became the royal family, um, you know, engaged in a process of um, unifying other sort of kingdoms, um, formed the Ryukyu Kingdom, which then sort of um, became, I guess, responsible um, for managing um, the trade, um, you know, tribute relations um, throughout sort of what we consider to be Okinawa today. Um, it really, um, there's a lot of research um, now done between um, the Ryukyu Kingdom um, and parts of um, Southeast Asia and China. It's considered to be a very flourishing sort of kingdom um, that was very prosperous um, as a result of its position as kind of the intermediary between sort of all these different sort of trading um, regions, including Japan. So it was seen as this place that connected Japan and China and Southeast Asia. Um, and then also by extension, right, we go even further into um, South Asia and the Middle East. And so it's considered, um, you know, there's also the self-narrative, right, where, um, you know, people consider the kingdom to be sort of this golden age of Okinawan history where it was independent, where it was um, relatively prosperous, and where there was relatively, um, I guess, little um, expropriation. So that's the story that's told today, um, and it's becoming increasingly um, a, you know, subject of um, increasing academic research. Um, Things kind of change um, once we get into the early 17th century. So once we get to 1609, what ends up happening is that the kingdom um, is um, invaded or and subordinated um, to what is presently um, Kagoshima, which is uh, part of the southwestern part of Japan, of mainland Japan. Um, by um, a domain called Satsuma Domain, which is run by a family um, called the Shimazu clan. Um, and basically what happens at that point is um, the Shimazu clan um, takes over um, all of the trade um, that the Ryukyu kingdom is engaged in and that sort of trade, that the profits from that trade go into the coffers of the Shimazu clan as opposed to the royal family. There are two things I think that, that are happening here, right? So um, the Shimazu clan is trying to demonstrate to its overlord, um, which is the Tokugawa state, um, the feudal state of Japan, um, that it's capable of um, subordinating this kingdom 
at the same time, what's also happening is this is a period where um, Japanese and Chinese trade relations have been cut off. And so what has to happen is um, the Shimazu clan essentially has to um, emphasize or pretend in a way um, that the kingdom remains independent in order for the kingdom to continue sort of its tributary and trade relations with China that it can then sort of take over. And so what, what you have um, is you have the um, clan passing a series of laws um, that make it um, illegal essentially for um, you know members of the Ryukyu kingdom to um, become essentially more um, Japanized, if you will. So they're sort of told that they have to like maintain, you know, their language, their dress. They're not to adopt anything that would make it appear as though they've been subjugated by the Japanese. And so there we have sort of this this weird thing where you know Ryukyuans are supposed to just maintain their Ryukyuanness. Um, in order to ensure that that trade continues. I think, you know, um, a lot of um, people recognize or, you know, kind of scholars insist that, well, everybody knew what was going on. You know, the Chinese knew that, you know, it was not independent any longer, but everybody sort of like maintained um, this, this sort of um, facade. But what it did was it did sort of end up creating um, sort of... Um, stopping right any kind of um you know transformation in sort of um, politics and language and dress that may have um happened um sort of as a result of this this kind of um new subordination um and then they also the the shimazu also wanted to sort of um i guess um display um, the sort of um, exotic nature of this clan, that this kingdom that they'd subordinated. So what they would do is they would um, make the um, officials um, of the Ryukyu kingdom sort of, um, you know, parade in their customary, you know, official dress and um, along with like musicians and dancers and all sorts of people. And um, they would have to sort of pay an official visit um, to um, the Tokugawa clan, uh, the Tokugawa state in Edo, just to sort of display, you know, like look at look at this exotic kingdom that we've been able to subjugate, and so the, the sort of um, retention of what would be considered Ryukyuan dress and customs was also a really important sort of political sort of tactic, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's quite fascinating to see the 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 similarities between uh, different periods of time, uh, from from mm-hmm. then to from then to later to even now. Uh, and so, uh, um, we might say, but maybe maybe we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit. But perhaps going to so we were I mean the 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 Shimazu domination was pretty much. Uh, concomitant with uh, the Edo Edo era so uh, after after that comes uh, the the Meiji Meiji era in Japan with uh, with all the uh, um, sort of what what is probably 
not completely unproblematic to call the <laughs> the modern modernization of of Japan, but uh, and that's pretty much at that time that uh, that uh, uh, or a little bit later that uh, the Ryukyu Kingdom is being annexed to Japan, right? Can you can you tell mm -hmm. us in in which circumstances exactly? With regards to um, the yeah the annexation of the the kingdom, um, it took place um, just about. Well, the, the process began just as the new um, Meiji state was being formed. And so all of sort of um, these changes that take place within um, what is today considered Japan um, were taking place, um, you know, beginning in the, the 1840s, 1850s onward, um, you know, as um, East Asia is, is sort of facing um, the encroachments of um, mostly European right, imperialism. And so we can consider, we can take what's going on in um, Okinawa sort of within the same sort of trajectory as, let's say, the opium wars in China with the, um, you know, first visits of, um, you know, Commodore Perry and other sort of um, people who are coming and approaching um, Japan. He also goes to Okinawa and also the Bonin Islands. Um, and so this is a period where there's a lot of um, kind of external encroachments alongside internal transformations that ended up sort of dismantling feudal regimes, um, the feudal regime in, in Japan, first of all. Um, and then also, you know, kind of um, leading to a lot of discussions about um, state form even in, in the Ryukyu Kingdom. And so you have sort of that broader context. And then what happens is the old sort of Tokugawa regime is dismantled. Um, the Meiji state sort of comes into existence in 1868. And by that time, there are already conversations going on about what to do with the Ryukyu Kingdom. Um, largely, I think, at this point, because um, the Meiji state's um, incorporation into this sort of field of international law, Western law, right, um, made it kind of difficult for, um, for them to imagine that um, the pre-existing, the existing relationship, which is one of um, what's called dual subordination of the kingdom, um, with Japan as well as with um, China um, was considered to be um, not acceptable in international law. And so the Japanese um, government feared that if things were left ambiguous in the Ryukyu Kingdom and if its own borders were left kind of too porous, then that could um, provoke intervention on the part of um, European powers. And so they, they thought it was a priority to make sure that um, sovereignty, the issues of sovereignty be clarified um, with the Ryukyu Kingdom. And so what they did was um, they engaged in kind of a decade-long process of annexation that culminated in um, the establishment of Okinawa Prefecture in 1879. And so it was kind of a, um, a, a process that was very um, sensitive to, um, you know, the, the sort of um, dangers of European encroachment in East Asia as a whole. And so once that happened, um, the government, well, I mean, once, once um, the kingdom was dissolved 
and then Okinawa Prefecture was put in its place. Um, the government was not yet convinced, the Japanese government was not yet convinced um, that um, the people of Okinawa were ready you know, for full um, subjecthood, right, as sort of full-fledged members of the Japanese nation, as the rest of the country, and so they maintained um, what they called preservation of old customs policy there, which said that we will make some changes, but for the most part, we'll keep um, old systems, administrative systems, um, you know, tribute policies, you know, taxation policies intact for the time being until they, you know, the Okinawan people prove that they're ready to be fully integrated into Japan. And also I should note that this was also the same period um, that um, the Japanese state was also engaging in a process of colonization of the northern territories of Japan, which is, um, you know, kind of now called sort of Hokkaido, um, or the, the lands of the Ainu as well. So that sort of process um, began, you know, a little bit earlier um, in 1869, I believe. But this is all part of the same process of trying to sort of consolidate the territorial boundaries of the Japanese nation state, figuring out, you know, where would be the northernmost boundaries, how would we be able to sort of um, consolidate those boundaries, keeping in mind um, that those were not the boundaries, um, you know, in the previous era. So negotiating with, um, you know, their their rivals or their counterparts in Russia, for example, or in the Qing government, for example, trying to figure out what they would be able to consolidate without too much conflict with their, their neighbors. Yeah. Well, th that leads me to a, a very complex question, but that I that I meant to ask you nonetheless, which is, um, you, you just mentioned the, you just mentioned Hokkaido and the, the Hainu indigenous population. And I'm wondering how much could we read the, the, the annexation of the Ryukyu, uh, the Ryukyu kingdom and, and the history of Okinawa at large, um, uh, through, through the reading, through the usual reading we make of, uh, of, American and Japanese imperialism and uh, and uh, European colonialism regarding regarding indigenous population because it's quite not as clear in the case of of the Ryukyu Kingdom if I if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, this is a really interesting and complicated question that I didn't deal with, um, I think at all in my book. Um, but I think that, um, you know, if we sort of think about um, what's going on in the Meiji period, what's, what's going on and, you know, the way that we um, classify, right, the Ainu as being sort of, um, you know, um, part of uh, kind of global um, indigenous um, history, I think that it's probably necessary um, to um, engage in a similar kind of um, maneuver in Okinawa. Um, I think the, the reason why, um, you know, that really hasn't been done with the exception, think of a couple of, of scholars um, who are working out of Chicago right now, um, is because um, with regards to um, the Ryukyu Kingdom in Okinawa, um, 
I mean, it gets a little complicated because what happens is you, uh, how do we say this? Um, if we compare um, the sort of um, Ainu colonization and the annexation of the Ryukyu Kingdom, for example, there are some um, important differences. Um, so, for example, with regards to um, the Ainu population, right, there was sort of, I would argue, um, an effort to um, completely um, dismantle, I think, existing sort of um, ways of life. There's a kind of um, the, a violence that was there, um, even with regards to kind of the assimilatory project that followed the initial sort of expropriation of lands. Um, there is sort of a degree of violence and a degree of dehumanization um, of Ainu, Ainu settler population of Ainu populations that is really easy, I think, um, to to signal right or to place into um, that sort of um, broader history. With regards to um, the Ryukyu Kingdom, I mean, this is just a matter of degree, which may or may not be that important. But um, what you see there is, I don't know, this is so hard. Um, I mean, yeah, because I mean, the more I think about it in relation to Ainu, I think that um, it's hard to say that it's not, right, a part of this kind of history. Um, what What's hard is that um, the process of um, kind of changing um, people's sort of way of life, um, the kind of process of converting people, um, you know, kind of everyday people who lived in um, the Riku Kingdom, for example, um, from you know, kind of self-sufficient producers who were engaged in pretty sort of diverse um, agricultural practices to people who are sort of being, um, you know, kind of compelled um, to grow more sweet potato, grow more sugar cane in order to sort of submit that as taxes and tribute to um, you know their own government, which was then sort of submitting that as taxes and tribute to the Shimazu clan, right? That was a really um, a, a long and gradual process um, that took place so that um, when you get into the Meiji period and when you get into sort of their kingdom's conversion and incorporation into a new regime, um, the change is not as dramatic which makes maybe it more difficult to see it as, you know, a, you know, a violent process in the same way that we would take a look at Ainu. But I think it's a serious question that I definitely need to kind of think about. And then, you know, also the reason why I think, you know, it's, it's, so complicated because at the same time, in terms of the the sort of the dehumanization, in terms of the way um, that um, you know, sort of the the people of the former Ryukyu Kingdom are then sort of um, treated, right, or talked about, or um, yeah, I mean, just treated as being sort of um, you know barbaric and savage and completely in need of civil 
civilizing sort of um, practices, that part is very clear that it exists. And, you know, sort of that was, that, that's been sort of displayed so many times, I think, um, you know, over the course of history, and as you say, you know, continues to exist. Um, in the present, it makes it very hard for me to say that it's a different condition. Um, I talk about it in the book, but I mean, the one um, very um, shocking, I think, um, and apparent and very famous sort of incident that took place um, is called the, um, the Human Pavilion incident, which took place in 1903 um, in Osaka, where, um, you know, Okinawans alongside Ainu populations, alongside um, Taiwanese um, Aboriginal populations were all sort of placed on display um, in something called the Human Race Hall um, that the Japanese government, um, you know, kind of displayed as being um, something to be very proud of. There were these sort of um, barbaric sort of um, colonized or semi-colonized populations that, um, you know, were considered to have been subjugated, um, you know, by them as seen as sort of a marker of um, Japanese modernity that they were able to um, sort of amass this collection of different groups of people, right, as colonial subjects. And so we saw that in 1903, um, we saw, we you know, we, we see it all the time. We see it even in terms of um, government policies that, um, you know, said that Okinawans who, um, you know, were tattooed had to be, um, you know, returned from their places of um, immigration because they were seen as an embarrassment um, to the Japanese population as a whole. I mean, there are sort of, you know, this, this constantly happens even, you know, and I would argue that even with regards to, um, you know, the, the way in which um, Okinawa became um, this, um, you know, was, I mean, the only, you know, the only sort of um, place within sort of Japan proper um, that saw, you know, kind of concrete fighting during World War II. Um, the rationale there was also, you know, part of the same process of saying that, well, Okinawans, you know, it's better that the Okinawans are sacrificed so that we can protect um, the Japanese population, right, on the mainland. I mean, that in and of itself reveals um, that, you know, Okinawans were, you know, continued to be differentiated even, you know, um, long after, Right, the initial annexation process. Um, and then, of course, the most famous would be, you know, where Okinawa um, was um, kind of sacrificed um, right after World War II um, and handed over um, to the American occupation forces, um, you know, in return for um, the um, sparing of the life of the Japanese emperor. Right um, to not be um, what is it called? Um, not be tried as a war criminal, right? So there are like all of these ways in which Okinawa and the people of Okinawa are traded um, for the for the sort of um, good of the nation as a whole, which indicates that Okinawan people are not considered to be part of you know the nation proper. And so I think, you know, all of, all of those sort of, um, you know, 
um, repeated, right, sort of um, instances of um, sacrifice reveal um, that there is sort of a differentiation, um, you know, that, that should be considered, you know, like within, um, I think, uh, I don't know, I don't know what that literature is called, but I think that perhaps, yeah, part of the literature on, um, it should be in the conversation, at least, right, is I think where I'll, I can stop for now. <laughs> Uh, but since since we're since you drove us uh, to uh, the American occupation between uh, 1945 and 1972, uh, something that I also was genuinely curious about is uh, about the the names themselves because as as you said, okay, the the names themselves because you you mentioned that. Okinawa was very much a sort of Meiji imposition of a name uh, upon what used to be called the Yuku, the Yuku Kingdom. But then during the occupation, we see the, the term of Ryukyu coming back to become the Ryukyu government, which is the occupational government. Could you, could you maybe just tell us for a few minutes about, about this sort of politics of names that goes through uh, the same territory? Mm -hmm. So I think... Um a scholar um, at the University of Hawaii um, who wrote about, um, who, who recently published a book on the American occupation. Um, her name is Mire Koikari. Uh, she talked about this um, quite a bit, I think, in her book. Um, but um, I think what, what, yeah, in terms of the politics of naming, um, I think what the American occupation um, forces were trying to do in this period was it was trying to really sort of distinguish itself um, from, um, you know, Japanese rule. And so in order to do that, and because it feared um, that um, occupation policies would not really take hold if the Okinawan people... Um, you know, kind of were too nostalgic or were too desirous of going back, right? Or, or sort of um, regaining um, their sort of position, right, as Japanese subjects, then the occupation would not succeed. What they tried to do was they implemented a series of kind of educational programs and policies um, that tried to um, emphasize um, the sort of um, unique and um, a different sort of history of um, the Ryukyu Kingdom as opposed to um, the Japanese nation state. So it was trying to sort of cultivate um, or recultivate a sense of Ryukyuan identity, um, you know, and, and I think the naming of, of the government um, really reflects that intention because the one thing that I think the occupation forces um, really... Um, struggled with and wanted to avoid um, was um, a really um, intense sort of um, desire on the part of the Okinawan people to um, kind of be reunited in a sense um, with Japan until, you know, they were ready for it. So um, I think the occupation authorities were not sure, right, um, you know, when in fact um, they would be ready to, um, you know, revert um, Okinawa back to Japanese, um, full Japanese sovereignty, and so they wanted to sort of keep that matter, I mean, open for negotiation. 
end. And so it was really important to do that. And it was also sort of um, part of a these series of cultural and educational activities um, that um, the occupation authorities were engaged in. And, you know, kind of that also included the establishment of um, the University of Ryukyu's, um, you know, after World War after World War Two, um, it was it was part of a series of cultural and educational sort of activities that um, emphasized, I think, um, mutual exchange, right? So this idea that the Americans would um, bring with them, right, sort of um, these democratic educational institutions and practices. Um, along with, and this is what um, Mire Koikari talks about, new notions of domesticity, um, you know, things like home economics classes, for example, right, that try to turn um, Okinawan um, women into housewives who are equipped with proper sort of scientific and economic rationality to manage the household. Um, and then in exchange, um, you know, the Okinawans would then sort of offer to, you know, these sort of military um, housewives and communities, right, um, knowledge about their own um, practices, um, linguistic, um, you know, artistic, um, and I guess what else? Also cooking, right? I mean, so, so this was sort of seen as a way to also um, foster good relations in what was, you know, clearly um, was going to be and was in fact um, a very combative um, sort of situation. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, you know, the way that, um, you know, the Meiji state had to, in a sense, erase you know, that sort of um, history, that prehistory of, um, you know, autonomy and, you know, prosperity and flourishing and things like that by getting rid of that name altogether. And then we see sort of um, the revival of that name, ironically, by another occupying force in order to try to mute um, the, the connection um, to its predecessor. Uh, and so, in 1972, the occupation uh, uh, theor theoretically ends, but uh, the military presence uh, in Okinawa, in particular in Okinawa Island proper, remains extremely high uh, up until today. Could you could you maybe drive drive us until yeah, pretty much today, and we'll we'll address uh, maybe the, the 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 current activism that is being uh, deployed against uh, against U.S. U.S. bases after that. Um, yeah, so um, the end of occupation um, in 1972 was a major disappointment to a lot of, um, you know, Okinawan residents, um, but in particular um, activists who had been calling for um, Okinawa's reversion to Japan, not because, not necessarily because they were really interested in reuniting with, you know, Japan, um, but because they thought that um, reversion was a way that they would be able to extricate their islands from this relationship with the United States, which they recognized not only as being um, very 
um, you know, violent um, for their everyday lives, but because they were starting to um, understand, um, or they, they really did not want, you know, to have their islands be the foundation upon which, um, you know, the United States was able to engage in imperialist activities abroad. And so, you know, there's a really strong kind of reversion movement um, that, um, you know, kind of led up to the end of occupation. Um, but um, these people were left quite um, disappointed and disillusioned with the arrangement, um, you know, kind of post-occupation because um, none of the sort of promises of, you know, the base presence being alleviated um, actually came to fruition. And so, um, you know, very little, I think, um, change, at least for um, the, the sort of military base situation after occupation. Um, and um, this is a really, I guess, well-known figure. But even today, I think Okinawa um, houses 70%, right, of all of the American military bases um, that exist on Japan. Um, and so we're dealing with a very um, heavily militarized zone. In terms of politics, I think um, what's amazing is there's such a wide um, variety of um, tactics um, that activists have deployed in order to try to alleviate this condition um, that ranges from kind of direct protest at um, the gates which you saw. Um, in addition, you know, to that, and this this was something that was taking place prior to um, the end of occupation. But you also have things like um, communities insisting, right, that um, they um, that bases be removed or that they they gain access um, to base lands um, because their ancestors were buried there, right? Um, and so there are ways in which communities. Um, and this is something that um, anthropologist at Duke named um, Chris Nelson talks, sorry, he's not at Duke, he's at Chapel Hill, um, talks about, um, but communities sort of organized um, and um, tried to gain access to bases, which they now have, um, in order to pay their respects to their ancestors who were killed in the Battle of Okinawa. Um, the, I mean... Recently, um, you know, I think I gave you a copy of that lawsuit, um, but recently um, a tactic that has um, gained some limited success um, with regards to, um, you know, the, the bases or at least the construction of new um, facilities um, has been to partner up with um, environmental groups um, in other parts of Asia and in the United States. Um, to to sort of say that you know it's illegal, um, essentially um, for new um, base construction to take place in areas that would affect um, um, endangered species of animals. So the dugong is is the one that has been the center, right? The centerpiece, I think, um, of this this sort of um, use of um, international. Um, kind of environmental law and conventions to stop the, the building of, of new bases. So that's another tactic. And then there's been sort of 
a, a really important turning point, I think, um, with regards to anti-base um, movements has been sort of the long, long-standing sort of efforts um, by um, economists and, you know, by sort of local scholars to present a serious alternative um, to the base economy in Okinawa. And so um, this is very controversial because, you know, a lot of people argue whether or not the alternative they set forth is actually any better um, than the military bases. But one thing has been to try to counter um, a narrative that I think we see in a lot of um, places with a heavy base presence, which is that if they go away, you know, what will we do, right? We depend on these sort of um, installations for our livelihood, whether it's through direct employment on the basis or whether it's through a lot of, you know, all of the sort of retail and service activities that have developed alongside the bases. And so a lot of the, um, the difficulty has been to um, present some kind of viable alternative that people can really sort of believe in and get behind. Um, that's something that has, you know, that has been sort of taking place maybe more in, in academia um, to present an alternative to that. Um, so there's a variety of ways, I think. And then, of course, we have, you know, the, the sort of multi-year-long sit-ins um, that are taking place um, and that continue to take place. Um, to sort of draw attention um, to uh, the the current sort of building projects in in the Henoko area, so there are, there's so many um, kind of different tactics um, that have been ongoing um, that culminated, I think, in um, the sort of electoral successes of anti-base candidates. Um, you know, at the governor level, at the various sort of mayoral levels, um, and sort of in, in the diet, sort of um, national diet um, elections. But that's sort of, you know, just the culmination. There's just been a lot more activity going on um, on the ground. Yeah, per perhaps as a last point of this conversation, I think uh, I don't think it's de-responsibilizing de uh, the American imperialism to maybe also acknowledge the role that the Japanese government has been playing mm -hmm. in this in this uh, in this matter and in what you were calling the the continuous sacrifice of Okinawa. Uh, could mm -hmm. could you maybe just address that in particular regarding the. Uh, regarding uh, the nationalism that uh, the Abe government has been uh, has been uh, uh, developing in the last uh, in the last uh, decade. Of course, um, yeah. I mean, so this this whole sort of um, I guess condition is not imaginable without the cooperation of the Japanese government, right? And so what you've had is that the Japanese. Um, courts um, for a long time have, have played a major role in um, overturning um, a lot of processes, um, you know, that have sort of, um, for example, led to, um, well, that have, I guess, a lot of processes that have been won through, like, the formal political process in Okinawa. So, for example, 
right, with regards to um, a lot of um, these, um, you know, these bases and their ability to operate um, in Okinawa, um, these um, bases are um, not owned by the U.S. military. In fact, they are um, under lease agreements, um, yearly lease agreements that have to be renewed. Um, and what happens is that um, there are various levels at which sort of this um, agreement or, or the renewals can take place. So um, landowners who hold the leases on these lands um, can choose to renew. If they refuse, um, you know, then, then sort of the next administrative unit is able to then override that. And so that could be the mayor. Right. And then if if the mayor sort of um, refuses, then it kind of goes up to the governor, which goes up to then um, the Japanese state. And so what's ended up happening is um, there have been some major um, electoral victories where, um, you know, kind of um, governors, mayors and governors have run on anti-base campaigns. And so they've refused. Right. Um, to um, kind of. Um, put the rubber stamp, right, and renew these lease agreements. Um, so you would you would think that, like, you know, that's enough, right, in a sense, if we're talking about sort of some kind of, you know, democratic or constitutional process working, it's very clear um, that, um, you know, residents of Okinawa are saying, no, like, we refuse, right, to allow these things to operate. But you know, at every turn, whether it's through, I guess, you know, um, the funding, um, you know, kind of, of, of um, the massive, like, spending and funding to try to sort of um, get um, pro-base um, politicians in office in Okinawa on the part of the um, Liberal Democratic Party, the dominant sort of the obvious party, or whether it's through um, kind of threats, direct threats, saying that, well, if you don't, like, you know, kind of authorize these bases, then there are going to be severe financial consequences to your prefecture, or whether it's through um, kind of going through the court system, Japanese court system, which is, you know, not going to actually block, right, um, these agreements, or whether it's through um, the um, Abe administration actually suing um, the governor, right? There are all these ways in which um, it's not just this government, but this government has been, you know, very aggressive in terms of sort of making it very, very clear um, that despite um, any sort of, um, you know, um, will expressed, right, um, through the political process by the people of Okinawa that they're going to sort of, you know, kind of... Um, make sure that the current arrangement or something like it um, continues. So the other option would be, you know, if the if the uproar is against, um, you know, the U.S. military base presence, um, then what's also been happening is some of these bases um, have been converted into self-defense forces, um, for, force bases. And so, you know, sort of the same thing happening, but with the Japanese military is another with the Japanese self-defense forces is another sort of way in which some of this protest has been, or there's been an attempt to neutralize that um, sort of anti-U.S. sentiment. Um, and then with regards to, yeah, the, if you're talking about like the Abe government and nationalism, um, what we see is that um, because it's become very difficult um, for the Okinawan police 
um, politically to actually um, handle right these anti-base protests that are taking place um, the um, Okinawa sorry um, the defense ministry of Japan has actually dispatched um, you know police riot police from other parts of the country more specifically Osaka um, which has also a very conservative um, kind of um, nationalistic um, sort of mayor to um, Okinawa in order to um, police um, any sort of protest that takes place and um, the way that that you know happens and we saw it um, I think in in the piece that I that I wrote um, for your magazine is we see sort of um, the kind of unapologetic deployment um, of nationalist sentiment and not just nationalist sentiment but one that sort of says that you know kind of who are you you know as you know these sort of barbaric savage people to get in the way right of our sort of national national projects so you know it's a, there's a way in which um, you know the protests are dismissed um, not just you know as sort of um, something that is going against um, national interests, but as um, something that is um, illegitimate because it's being sort of um, enacted by people who are not even worthy to make their own claims on the nation, right? So it's, yeah, it's very racist and I don't know um, the Abe yeah Abe government has not and, and also you know the the way that sort of a lot of the um, support for um, these movements in Okinawa has kind of been dispelled or quelled um, you know in mainland Japan has been to sort of um, then sort of play on this idea that well what about, you know, the threat from China or what about the threat from North Korea, right? It's sort of these things override, right? Um, sort of any sort of concerns, um, you know, locally that are taking place in Okinawa. So what we have there is sort of this, you know, kind of ultra-nationalistic, you know, sentiment, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis, um, China and North Korea then being deployed in order to delegitimate um, the, the sort of claims that are being made in Okinawa. So there's a lot, a lot going on there. N not getting, not getting better. <laughs> well, unfortunately, but which, which is also a, a, a sacrificial claim since uh, the presence of the U.S. bases puts a gigantic target on the island to begin with. So, um, well, Wendy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I think I would refer anyone to your article in the Phenomenalist number nine uh, to really get a, a sort of complement to this conversation, as well as obviously your your book, The Limits of Okinawa, um, and uh, and perhaps even uh, a future <laughs> another future article uh in the phenomenalist we'll 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 see that uh, together so uh thank you again and uh and um uh, i hope that uh everybody followed us in this uh in this uh history recent history of the ryukyu islands okinawa thank you